You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit hopekelowna.ca. Encourage you to turn to Micah, the book of Micah, as we get into God's Word here this morning. And never knew these masks would come in handy for uh, wiping your nose when you're, yeah, praying. So I guess this one is toast. I'll need a new one. But um, just so thankful we can open God's Word together. Bibles open Matthew to Micah chapter 5. Have your Bibles, pens, kids. I hope you have your kid sheets ready so that you can uh, follow along in the Word of God today uh, along with your, your, your parents. And um, just a, a little note, just make sure you stick with us to the end. We have an important family chat at the end of our service yet again this day. And we have some good news, some exciting news. You don't want to, you do not want to leave and go and like un, unsubscribe or, you know, stop watching early because we have some very good news we want to share with you, but also a call to even much more prayer. And, um, and so the book of Micah, Micah is not the easiest book to find. It is in the Old Testament. It's right in the middle there with all the other minor prophets that you'll see in the Old Testament. If you need to use the table of contents, you go ahead and do that. Micah is placed among, uh, as I said, the minor prophets. There's Obadiah, there's Jonah, then there's Micah, and, or, uh, no, Micah and then Nahum. And if you get to Habakkuk, you've gone too far, so it's just nestled in there. It's a small little book there. And uh, turn to chapter 5, and in chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to read our uh, first five verses here together. You can follow along. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when he when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And the first part of verse 5, and he shall be their peace. Now, we're taking a pause from the series that we've been in for the last, like, 20, 20 weeks. Uh, we've been working through the book of First Peter, and Lord willing, we'll return to it in early 2021. Speaking of 2021, I saw this the other day, and I perhaps thought maybe this is some of our approach to 2021. Yeah, opening the door of it very cautiously, and I think that could be so true, because perhaps this is what you're feeling about 2020, um, just what 2020 needs, packs of rabid dogs with six rows of teeth. I mean, just look at that. And then, oh, wait, that's just a pine cone. 
Um, and, and, and yet we can easily get so kind of like, oh great, just another thing happening in 2020, and uh, let's just get through to 2021. Well, Lord willing, we will get into First uh, Peter once again early in the new year, but I want to give us a little teaser of the next verse that we'll be digging into in the next, and you can continue to keep reading it another time, but, but in First Peter chapter 4, verse 7, you don't have to turn, that'll be on the screen, it says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, just leave that up for a moment because that's important. The end of all things is at hand. And you say, come on, pastor. People, Christians, have been saying that for years. You know, repent, the end is near kind of thing. And, and, and with every new crisis that seems to come. And, 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 and yet, we're still around. And, and in fact, it is true. I mean, Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago. And we're still here. But it is a true fact that every generation that there has been, there have been signs in indicating Christ could return at any time. How close are we? I have no idea. But we have never been this close to Christ's return as we are today. One day continues to keep getting closer and closer every day that that this troubled earth continues on. And we need to get our hearts ready and right for the Lord's return. The Lord's coming is closer than it has ever been before. And one day, we will all stand before Him. What a day that will be. To be judged, to be rewarded. COVID-19, though, is showing us that a virus can so quickly bring a world to its knees. Our world is in such chaos. It, it, I mean, you just turn on the news. You just, you just look up your sources, whatever it might be. Our world is in a mess. It's in chaos, making it more ripe and more ready for the right leader to come along and propose to fix everything. It's just our world is getting more and more groomed for Antichrist. And yet with all of the various news and rumors and theories and conspiracies and videos and perspectives, it's hard these days to know what to believe. And church, family, hope, church, we've, we've got to be so careful. We, we have to be careful what we are reading, what we are watching, what we are listening to, what we are researching, what we are filling our minds with, and what we are accepting then as truth. And yes, there is truth to be found the chances of us finding it completely is going to be very difficult. There's plenty, plenty, plenty of deception in our world. Plenty of deception going on in these days. And we need to hold one another in check. And there's lots of truth in this statement that one church posted up on their, their church sign. I love this. If you're going to believe in everything you read, then start with your Bible. Start with the Word of God. This is where it all starts, in the Word of God. And it's so important that we do that in these days because God's Word is unchanging. God's Word gives us hope. And in God's Word is where we find real hope. It's in God's Word that is an anchor for our soul. It is where we find real hope in life, and even this year, 2020, it's where we find true, real Christmas hope. Now, Christmas hope is not found 
in the lights, in the stockings, in the presents. There's some happiness and there's some good times that can revolve around that. And you know the warm and fuzzies that we get. And, and, and now Christmas hope now could be po- quite possibly found in this. A family uh, from the church dropped this off at our house and just notice at the bottom there those gorgeous little mouthfuls of awesomeness there, those angelic eggs that just slide so nicely. Yeah, now, now, there can be some, some, some real hope, uh, Christmas hope found in, in something like that, but that hope is just for probably some weight gain. And Christmas, you know, in this at least if I ate all those eggs, I, I mean, great pre-sermon kind of uh, food sort of thing, but, um, you know, a protein coma or even more so, Christmas hope can often result, it would seem, um, is, well, it's not found in a carb coma that can easily happen this time of year. And yet, real hope, Christmas hope, even in the midst of craziness and chaos is found in the Word of God. And as we look to God's Word today, it's where we will see God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness in the past, how He has been faithful all the time with His people. How He has been good to His people. And how He has been good and how He has been faithful in the past and He will be faithful now. He will be faithful in the future to all who are His What a great hope that we have in God's word. And as we see all that is going on in the world, as we anticipate the second coming of Jesus Christ, it is vital that we take a look and we look at the promises of Jesus' first coming, where we see hope that was promised. We see hope that was promised. Today we are going to look at four securing hope, hope promises that we see in God's word here in the book of Micah. The arrival of of the Son of God in human flesh secures for us eternal hope. Let me say that again. The arrival of the Son of God in human flesh secures for us, for you and for me, eternal hope. And today we are going to look way back, way back. We're going to look at Christmas before it was even called Christmas. We're going to look at Christmas before, yes, before there was trees, kids before there was a Santa, before there was stockings, before there was lights, before there was shopping malls, before there were presents, before there was Mary and Joseph, before there was angels and shepherds and wise men. We're going to go way back. We're going to go 700 years before that holy night in Bethlehem when Jesus Christ was born. We're going to go 700 years before that. And the first thing that we see is that real hope is promised even in the darkest of days. Write that down. encourage you to write that down. That real hope is promised even in the darkest of days. Micah wrote 700 years before Christ. He was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. And and so they were writing at the same time. And now Micah was a bold prophet. Saying things as he was led, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit about what was to come in the future. Warning God's people. And giving them a picture of what was going to be taking place. Now, the crazy and confusing thing when it comes to Micah or any prophetic writing is that the prophets would write about what was coming five years into the future, 500 years into the future, three, 4,000 years into the future. In fact, some of what Micah writes about is still has not yet happened. It is in the future, it's in the millennial reign of Christ that he writes about. 
in one of the previous, in chapter 4. And it's left to us, and sometimes it will shift into things that are yet to come, things that have already happened, sometimes within just a few short verses. And so it's up to us, it's like a puzzle. A lot of people like doing puzzles at Christmas time. It's like doing a puzzle. You have all of these pieces and you try to piece it all together. But Micah is a book of warning about God's coming judgment. But it's also an amazing book that is the good news of God's love and great mercy. And we see that here in this amazing book. Now, now this was a very dark time. When Micah was writing this, it was a very dark time for God's people and for the nation of Israel. The kingdoms had already split from the northern, into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. God's people had been violating, they had been ignoring the word of God, and the nation was imploding from within. And in many ways, what was happening then is happening now. What was happening before the first arrival of Jesus is happening now again before Jesus Christ returns. And we'll just see some amazing similarities. Micah exposes the sin of of God's people. It's not even the sins of the ungodly, the pagan, but of God's people, their idolatry, how they were in, in love with, with, with people and possessions more than God. And he exposes their callous and their lukewarm hearts towards God, how they tried to marry in some of the, you know, sort of the teachings and the religion and, and some of the ways of worship from pagan countries and, and bring it into the worship of God. Just in the same way that, that New Age and, and, and various other sort of forms of meditation and, and other religions and, and, and practices are being brought into Christianity even today. He lists their despicable sins we see in the book of Micah, including fraud. Yes, fraud in, amongst God's people. Theft. Underhanded business practices. Not with God's people. Yeah. Greed. Debauchery. Hypocrisy. All, all listed here in, in, this, in this book. There were also many false teachers in these days telling people what they wanted to hear. Oh, it's going to be okay. Yes, go ahead and do this. Lies and lies and more lies, they would tell. And the leaders, the kings, were oftentimes incredibly corrupt. Sometimes there were some good kings that turned the hearts of the people back to God. But then you see that the next king would come along and he would do evil in the eyes of God. And oftentimes the kings failed to protect the weak and the vulnerable. And if the kings failed to protect it, society, they weren't going to protect the weak or the vulnerable either. Everyone was living for themselves and God's people had come very comfortable with sin. They started to see sin as not a very big deal. I kind of like, like to pick and choose my holiness level. I want to kind of pick and choose my level of commitment to the Lord. What's good for you is going to be a little bit different for me. After all, God is gracious. God is loving. God is tolerant. And besides, no one's, no one's perfect. That was the attitude then. And sadly, that can be the attitude today. So there was... A light view of sin, but there is also an even lower view of God's holiness. And the judgment and the destruction that Micah warns about, that he says is coming, it did come. And he reminds them how seriously we must take sin. Especially, not just the sin, we get so disgusted by what we see in the world. But what about the sins of God's own people? Yet maybe we think that 
that, that this was just a God thing in the Old Testament. That God was kind of an angry God, and, and, and here he ended up bringing judgment, and, and he brought, uh, brought other nations to rise up against his own. own. And, and sometimes people will think, oh, in, in the Old Testament, God had some anger issues. He, he was kind of an angry God back then. No, you have to remember, even in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, in the early church, in Acts chapter 5, God strikes a couple dead because they came in and they misrepresented the amount of money they gave for an offering. They, they, they told a lie. They wanted to make themselves look a little bit better about a piece of property that they sold, and so they would look a little more holy and a little more, oh, wow, how sacrificial, how devout. And they both conspired together, and they both ended up dying. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the warning that we as believers are not to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. Whether it's unconfessed sin or living out of relationship with God in our lives in, in various ways. And, and the warning there is that if we eat or drink in an unworthy way, we are eating and drinking judgment upon ourselves. And the Apostle Paul says, no wonder even some of you have, even, have fallen sick and some of you have died. We hear that, we read it, and, and yet we can partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way without really thinking, or we even cause others or encourage others to do so. God has been sending prophets over the years, the decades, the centuries, to warn his people, to call them back to God. But after almost 500 years of drifting and rebellion and countless opportunities, and, and prophets warning and calling them to return to worship, return to obedience. Finally, God says, enough, enough, judgment is coming. And interestingly enough, what, has happened, what is happening before Jesus' first arrival, what was taking place, as I already said, we are now seeing once again as we anticipate Jesus' second arrival, his second coming to earth. The first time he came to bring salvation. That's what Christmas is all about. It was the coming of Christ that ended up bringing 33 and a half years later salvation to us. The second time he returns, it will not be for salvation, it will be for judgment. Look at verse 1 as we work through this. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And here he's saying, get ready, gather your troops. It was dark days for them. But God's promise, and there's, there's God's promised hope even in the midst of dark days. And these were incredibly dark days. The coming army will lay siege. The king, your leader, he will be struck in the cheek, Micah says. And, and you know what? Like, I mean, back then, if, if a man, if a leader, if a king was struck, was slapped, was struck across the face... It was seen as, as a sign of disrespect. It was one of the greatest ways that you could humiliate. Today, if two men started to fight and they started slapping each other, I mean, you just walk away from that. I mean, that's just something wrong. Men just don't slap each other across the face. But back then, a slap on the cheek was an incredible sign of disrespect. And that is what was happening would, that Micah was saying. This is what's going to happen to your king. These were dark days. But these two are some pretty dark days here on planet Earth, aren't they? And some of you even right now, as you are watching or you're listening, you are in a dark place today. Fear, you are being run over by fear, by anxiety. Perhaps it's an emptiness inside, a spiritual emptiness, knowing that there's more, but you feel far from God. 
That's in a dark place. A lonely, perhaps it's loneliness and isolation, confusion, or frustration with what's going on. Maybe it's health concerns for you or for a loved one. Maybe you're in the midst of making an important life decision and it just seems like there's just so much cloudiness and just things are so unclear in these days. Maybe it's financial insecurity that you're, you're dealing with and, and, and there's just so much pressure and, and you're just not sure where to go and, and it just becomes, the world becomes very small and very dark very quickly. And all that we are hearing today in the news, it's so discouraging. And so our world is in this dark place and yet hope is promised Hope is promised, just as it was dark in those days, and it may be dark in your day, and it's dark in our world today in so many different ways, hope is promised in the darkest and the gloomiest of days, because God comes to us. He promises hope here on earth and for eternity to come. Look at verse 2 as it continues, and it says, but you, O Bethlehem, Epaphra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And the second promise that we see here is that hope is promised and is available for the small and the insignificant. So hope is promised in the gloom and the darkest of days, but it's also promised and it's available for those who consider themselves or may think themselves small and insignificant. God's promise of hope would take place in a little, small, dumpy town called Bethlehem. Small, insignificant, nothing of a town. I mean, you would not expect the king, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Deliverer, the Promised One, the one that everyone was waiting for. You would not expect him to be born in Bethlehem. You would expect Rome, or Babylon, or Alexandria, or Jerusalem. You need to make a statement when you are a king. What kind of a statement is this? Born in Bethlehem, but you know what? God does this in every generation. He uses the small. He uses the insignificant people. He uses the insignificant places, even insignificant in the eyes of the world, even churches, groups of people in an incredible way. God can use them. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 127, 127 of 1 Corinthians, God chose the foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. And God does this so that we cannot start to boast in our power, our strength, our talents, our accomplishment, our background, our heritage, but rather our boast is in God alone. Because you know what? Our natural propensity is to want to take and boast about how awesome we are. And we're not. God is the awesome one. And we humble ourselves before him. Insignificant churches God can use in a powerful way. I, I think back in the 1970s of a church in, in Saskatoon, a small Baptist church that took prayer seriously. When they called a prayer meeting, people showed up. And they were serious about prayer. In fact, they ended up with more people attending their prayer meeting than they did their Sunday morning service because they got fired up knowing and believing and trusting that God would work powerfully as they would pray. They were serious about taking God's word and with faith and boldness, praying and trusting God for revival. And in the early 1970s, a revival broke out in that church that swept that city, that swept that province, that even moved here to the Kelowna area, to the Okanagan and different places in the United States. People's lives were changed and rearranged by biblical, God-honoring 
work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. There was repentance. There was healing of relationships and marriages and restoration. And young people who were prodigals, who were lost, who were in church but not really in Christ, and, and others the same, got saved. An incredible work of God took place in a small, and it started in a small, insignificant church. I pray that God would use Hope Church for His glory. Not for our glory, not for the Great Commission Collective, the network we're a part of's glory, not for any of our glory, but for His glory and His glory alone. God comes to us in our weakness, in our hurt, in our confusion, in our nothingness. He comes to us in our sin. He comes to us when life is the darkest and the bleakest. He is there. In fact, sometimes that is the best way that we find him. That is the best time that we seek him when everything is stripped away, when we're sick and tired of being sick and tired, when we have nothing left. Yet we must come to that place of brokenness, come to that place of surrender. Children of Israel wouldn't bend the knee, and they face judgment. I like the line from that Christmas carol, one we'll send at the, sing at the end of the message, where meek souls shall receive him now, the dear Christ enters in. Where does Christ need to enter into your life today? Where do you need to humble yourself before him? What circumstances? What area of thinking? Where do you need to seek him? Where do you need him to invite him into those areas of your life? He desires to use you. You may see yourself as small, as insignificant. God desires to use you in a powerful way to affect the lives of others, to be a prayer warrior, to be an encourager of those who are are serving in other capacities in God's kingdom, to, to share the love of Christ with others, not just in actions, but in words. God has a plan to use every one of us for his glory. And just as God declared through Micah, through Micah his servant, and he said, essentially God was declaring, hold on, loved ones, hold on, a deliverer will come. There will be a deliverer. And even though the days may be dark and you may be small and insignificant, a deliverer will come and you will be safe. You will be eternally safe as you hold on in faith. And the faithful remnant that there was in those days that trusted God even before Christ was born, they had a faith that was accredited to them as righteousness. And here it is 2,700 years later from when Micah wrote these words. God has been 100. 100% faithful to what he promised. Over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the first coming of Jesus Christ, about his birth, about his life, about his death, about his burial, about his crucifixion, about his resurrection. Highlighted, outlined, prophesied hundreds of years before. All of them are yes. They've happened. God is faithful to his promises. Look then at verse 3. It says, therefore, he shall receive them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And here we see you've been brought low, but there will be one. There will be one who will come, born of a woman, that will come and he will gather the people. And indeed that happened. Jesus fulfilled that. Mary fulfilled that. And look at, it, it, at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. 
where it says, for all of the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Amen. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Today, wherever you find yourself, whatever state of mind you're in, no matter how small, insignificant, how discouraged, how in despair you are, how perhaps even spiritually right now, you are spiritually, if you're to be honest, you're spiritually indifferent. God beckons you to come, to return. And maybe in thinking you're small, you're insignificant, you're, you're a loser, you've messed up, a total screw-up at work, at school, in relationships, in your marriage, in your parenting, and perhaps especially in your relationship with God, and yet where meek souls will receive Him now. You see, the meek soul is the surrendered soul. God comes to us and He meets us in our darkest hour when we get low before Him. See, so oftentimes we just think if we tune into a service, and back when we used to go to be able to go to church freely, and even now it's just, we kind of think, well, if I get a service into me, I'll just kind of get fueled up and everything will be good, and, and, and uh, I just need to hear a few words, make it maybe offer a little prayer at the end. No. There's, there's a point, there's times we need to get alone with God. And it's in those dark times of desperation where we are seeking him we get low before him and we end up calling out to him and he fills and he empowers us and he strengthens us and we see what a good god we have who restores who gives hope third promise we see here thirdly hope promised means that there is strength for today and life forevermore there is strength for today and life forevermore Look at verse 4, and it says, And he shall stand. Just stop right there. That word stand. I encourage you to underline it in your Bible. That's a power word. Power word right there. And he shall stand. Stand in this context is used of a king. A king who is not sitting, but a king who is standing. A king who is standing in being anointed. A king who is standing in being victorious. A king who is standing watching over his kingdom, watching over those who are under him. The one who reigns and rules supreme is standing. And that's what we see here. And what is our king doing? He is standing and he is shepherding. He is caring for his flock. And this isn't just for life here on earth. This verse speaks about eternity. Look at his, we'll start again in verse 4. And he shall stand. Love that. And shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. That speaks of eternity. And what does it speak? And those who are under his care will be secure. What a good place to be. Jesus stood and he, he declared in John chapter 10, he declared, I am the good shepherd. John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And what does the good shepherd do? Five things that a good shepherd does. I encourage you to write these down. Here's what a good shepherd does. He leads. 
a good shepherd leads. Jesus is the one who knows the way to eternal life. He knows the way to life here on this earth, and he knows the way to eternal life to heaven. And he told his disciples, he told them, he says, that's why he says, follow me. And he leads and invites us to follow him. What else does a good shepherd do? A good shepherd guides. And not only does a good shepherd lead from the front as he leads the way through life and and to eternal life, but he guides, meaning he has that staff that has the the hook on the end of it and a a point on, on the other side of it, on the other end of it. And he has a staff and he will guide at times from the side and sometimes from the rear rescuing, guiding, and sometimes poking in the rear some of his sheep. And some of you need a poke in the rear today from the king of kings and from the chief shepherd, from his word. Our good shepherd through conviction and through circumstance will guide, he will lead, he will poke when we get off course because he desires to lead us safely home and to experience life everlasting here, even on this earth, even as chaos is happening, to experience him in worship, to be filled with his joy, with his strength, with his presence, with his peace. What else does a good shepherd do? Number three, he watches, never sleeping, always aware, never slumbering, never, you know, losing sight of what's taking place. He's watching. He's watching everything that's going on. He's watching everything that happens in your life. He sees everything good. He sees everything that's hidden. He watches. You may think that you are getting away with sin, but you're not. The good shepherd knows. He also provides. One of the best ways we see that this good shepherd provides for us is in Psalm 23. I'm going to read this here with a slightly different spin to it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why? Because he provides. He makes me lie down in greed pastures. He provides. He leads me beside still waters. He provides. He restores my soul. He yet again provides. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Again, he provides. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. He provides. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He provides. The good shepherd does this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He provides. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. He provides. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He provides. There's no unmet need when we follow, when we come under the care of the good shepherd. And and what else does a good shepherd do? He loves. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, it says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. I just love seeing these pictures, see them on social media, see them on uh, our online lobby, see them in our e-news, all these babies that have been born lately. And one of the things I just love being able to see is when you look at a dad holding his little daughter, a mom holding her son, and they hold them close. That's our good shepherd. He holds us close. We have a picture here of a good shepherd that loves, who is so tender, is so merciful, he's so compassionate. Again, in John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
Not only does he provide, he loves. He loves to the point of death. The fourth promise we see in the last one here is all of this is available through Jesus. Promised hope is available only in and through Jesus. And it says in verse 5, and he shall be their peace. Now, Isaiah, as I said earlier, was a contemporary to Micah. And in Isaiah chapter 9, he's writing about the Messiah, the promised one, being called the Prince of Peace. Now, this world, when Jesus was here on earth, and even since his death, burial, resurrection, conquering sin and death, this world has not known peace, and yet he's the Prince of Peace. Not until Christ comes again will he establish peace one day on this earth. But until that time, the important way that he comes and he is the Prince of Peace is the peace that we can have with God. It is a peace knowing and resting and having a clear conscience. Why? Because he has taken our sins from us. He's taken our sin and our guilt. Our sins are forgiven. We can lay our head down on the pillow at night being clear before God when we come to him in repentance, when we are living in right relationship with him and with others. That my sin, my failures, my unrighteousness are all, have all been exchanged by his perfect righteousness. You see, our biggest enemy, our greatest concern, it's not a virus. It's not COVID-19. It's not vaccinations. It is not a lockdown. It is not socialism. It is not the great reset that we're hearing about. Our greatest concern is not about cancer. It is not about having to wear masks or to wear masks or not to wear a mask. It, it, it's not, our biggest concern is about, about not being rejected or persecuted or be seen as a failure. No, th- those can be bad things and bad struggles and bad battles that we're facing. But our greatest battle, our greatest struggle, our, vi- our greatest foe is sin. And that sin, sin that is not dealt with leads to a soul, leads a soul to everlasting judgment. But here is the one, the promised one. Here is what he promises to come and do. He comes to rescue and to save and to give us his peace. When he rescues and saves, he gives us his peace as the Prince of Peace. Listen, just turn over to to Micah chapter 7. Turn over two chapters right towards the end of the book because here is what Micah would write. Here we see the gospel. Here we see something so beautiful. Verse uh, verse 18, who is like, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He again will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Some of you underline that word all because you need to know that. All of your sins have been cast into the depth of the sea. And the enemy wants to remind you and keep you in the hole. And you get out of that hole because of the blood of Christ. And here we have the promised one whose birth had been foretold hundreds of years before it actually happened. Born in an unlikely city. Born to marry an unlikely, insignificant woman in the eyes of the world. Here his birth would end up being announced 
to lowly shepherd. Yes, it was by angels, but it was a message to lowly shepherds. He was placed in a manger in a stable. He grew up and lived a perfect life, lived in perfect obedience to his earthly parents as well as to his heavenly father. He died a substitutionary death in our place. He was raised victorious on the third day. This is how our God tramples on sin. When he conquered sin and death, sin was trampled and he took, and, and after it was trampled, after it was pushed down, he, was, he then took it and he threw it into the depths of the sea. Not only did he destroy it, not only did he put sin to death, he threw it into the depths of the sea. That was God's plan from all along. And this, people, this is now our vantage point and how God promises from 2,700 years ago, all of his promises then were yes and amen. And you and I can have faith. We can have a confidence that God's promises in the word are for us today. This is the Christmas story before there was even Christmas. Is this your story? Where is the hopelessness in your life right now? Where do you feel helpless? Is it in a relationship? Is it in your marriage? Is it in your parenting? Is it in the COVID chaos? Is it in your finances? Is it in your health? Is it in the health of the loved one? Is it the well-being and and the care you have for another person who's perhaps isolated in long-term care? Where do you need to cling to the shepherd to today? What situation? What relationship? You know, in the late 1800s, there was a minister by the name of Phillips Brooks from the United States. And he went to the Holy Land over Christmas. And he spent Christmas Eve on the hillside of Bethlehem. And later on that night, he walked into the city of Bethlehem and wandered around. But that day, he had just an emotional time of worship and emotional experience and just being there, reimagining what took place there so many years before. It would be a few years later after he came home and pieced it all together that he penned the words to the old Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, where meek souls shall receive him now, the dear Christ enters in. Where does Christ need to enter into your life today? Is it for salvation that you've never trusted him? You've been running from God. You've never bent the knee to receive him as your Lord and Savior. You can do that today by calling out to him. Asking him to forgive you of your sins. Trusting and believing what Jesus did when he was here on this earth, when he died on the cross, that it was for you and believing it by faith. Asking him to be your Lord and Savior. Surrendering your life, your ways to him and say, God, I'm yours. Maybe you are a believer in Christ, but you've been running, you've been dry, you've been empty, you've been confused, you've been allowed just so many distractions. Your life is filled with worry, anxiety, isolation, whatever it might be. Maybe you've just even personally, you've cut yourself off from others. There needs to be a desperation though. That surrender, that meekness of heart. Call out to him today. He will meet you. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. 
Would you cast out our sin and enter in? Be born, be reborn in us today. And so God, I pray for brothers and sisters. Pray that today there would be new brothers and sisters who would follow you, who would bend the knee, receive you as Lord and Savior, and say, I desire to follow you, the good shepherd. And for all of us who know you, oh God, we can so easily become like the Israelites. And God, we've become like that and we repent and we need to return, we need to run to you. Would you renew, would you revive, would you re-strengthen these feeble, weak bodies of ours? Would we turn from sin and run to you? Would we hand over to you the weight of the world that we've been carrying and say, God, I surrender it to you. And God, would we then take and cling to your word and your truth this week? Would we become lovers of your word so much more than all the lovers of information and, and, and so infatuated with everything that's going on in our world? Would we become more and more infatuated with you? Would we not become infatuated with this Christmas season, the materialism, the busyness that we still might have in our lives? And would we see that all of your word, all of your promises are faithful? They're true and they will happen. And would we rest in your promises?